Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with the Sabbath day as we pick up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. There are a lot of people who today like to make a big issue over the Sabbath day and over worshiping on Sunday. And they say the Sabbath day is the day that you should worship God. And they've even gone so far as to say that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. And so you've all been guilty of taking the mark of the beast because you worship God on Sunday. Let me say that, first of all, I worship God every day of the week. As far as I'm concerned, every day of the week is a great day to worship God. I do believe that for man's sake, God established a pattern of six and one. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that God has ordained for the body's sake, one day of rest for the purpose of recuperation. I think that you'd live healthier and longer if you would just spend one day in bed a week. Just really flaked out and sacked out and doing nothing. Just a total change of pace. I would love to do it. (laughs) But this particular law was a special law to the people of Israel, as is declared in the 31st chapter of Exodus, verses 16 and 17. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the seventh day rested. So God here plainly declares that it's a sign between him and the children of Israel. It is interesting that the one law that Jesus was constantly being accused of violating was the law of the Sabbath. And that's what really created the ire of the Pharisees against Jesus more than anything else is that he disregarded their Sabbath day law traditions. Walking through the cornfields, he allowed his disciples, the wheat fields actually, take the corn of wheat and rub it in their hands and eat the corn on the Sabbath day. Why do you allow your disciples to do that, which is unlawful to do on the Sabbath day? Now, they had so interpreted the Sabbath, the bearing of burdens and so forth, that they had really made the Sabbath day extremely restricting with all of their rules and regulations that that regard the Sabbath day, what constitutes a, a keeping and a violating of the Sabbath day law. And instead of the day being a day of rest, it was a day of bondage. Man, everything they laid on you was so heavy that you were so worried about violating it that it was a bondage instead of a real rest and and, and a day of relaxation and rest. You were so concerned about the violation of it, they made it a bondage, keeping that law. In the early church, when it was brought to the attention of the church in Jerusalem, Concerning the Gentile Christians that were not walking after the law of Moses, it was determined by the early church that they would not try to put upon the church 
the Mosaic law, but only certain parts of it, and that which related to idolatry and eating of meats that were sacrificed to idols or, or, or blood, keep yourself from blood and things strangled and so forth. But nothing was mentioned as far as the Sabbath day and the church was concerned. Now, the law was not given to make men holy, and this is our whole misconception of the law. And that is the idea of the keeping of the law will make me holy. If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. If you could keep these Ten Commandments and by keeping them be righteous, then Jesus wouldn't need to die. If God could take and impute righteousness to you because you kept every one of these commandments in your heart faithfully and completely, then there is no necessity for Jesus Christ. But righteousness could not come by the law even if you kept it. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God related to these people, the covenant of God was related to their obedience. If they will obey and their obedience was the uh, to the law of God was the condition upon which they could relate to God. But this old covenant failed. And it failed because of man's weakness and man's failure. Man was incapable of obeying. Therefore, God has established a new covenant that isn't predicated upon man's faithfulness, but the new covenant is predicated upon God's faithfulness the faithfulness of God to keep his word. The first covenant, man's faithfulness to keep God's word. First covenant failed, man wasn't faithful. The second covenant that God has established through Jesus Christ is a covenant that God has now established which is predicated upon the faithfulness of God to keep his word and his covenant shall always stand with us because God will keep his word. And my believing that God will keep his word. So to him that worketh not but believeth, God imputes that faith for righteousness. Now, does that mean then that I have no relationship to the law at all? I can live however I want. I can violate any of these commandments I want and still have fellowship with God? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? But it means that God now gives to me the new power of his Holy Spirit within my life whereby I am enabled to be what God wants me to be. The fifth commandment, some people put with the first table. They say that it belongs in the first table. Honor thy father and thy mother because you are not to consider your father and mother on an equal, but always on a superior basis, even as God is always thought upon in a superior basis. And thus, they say it belongs in the first five words of the law instead of the second six. Uh, and so they have divided the law into two categories of five and five. I... Don't argue with that. You know, it's foolish. What difference does it make? It's all part of the ten. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, covet is to desire earnestly have a strong desire for those things you're not to have it now paul the apostle said this is the law that wiped him out 
I didn't know, he said, that coveting was sin. Except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Man, when he saw that, when the Spirit revealed that law to him, he said, man, I was dead. It killed me. It was the one that condemned Paul to death. Here he had done all he could to be righteous by the law. And he could write to the Philippians concerning his past experience as a Pharisee. He said, and concerning the righteousness which is of the law, I was blameless. But then when he saw the law was spiritual, then he said, man, I was wiped out. I was dead. The law destroyed me. Now, that was the whole basis of the teaching of Christ, and that is that the law is spiritual. Thou shalt not kill. What does that really mean? It means you're not to have hatred for anybody because hatred is the seedbed of murder. And thus you can violate the law, thou shalt not kill and never club a fellow at all. But if you have a hatred for him, animosity against him, you've violated the law, thou shalt not kill. Now, the law was intended as a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus Christ, to make us realize that we were spiritually bankrupt, to make me realize that there's no way I can pay the debt. And thus drives me to Jesus Christ as my source and my resource. Now all the people saw the thunderings, the lightnings, the noise of the trumpet, the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, hey, you, go, you speak with us and we'll listen to you. But don't let God speak with us or we'll die. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Now here they are, frightened, terrified by the manifestation of God's presence. The words of God's grace, fear not, for God is come not to destroy you. He's come to prove you. You said you would obey him. You'd be his people. You'd be his special people. Now God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you might really reverence God, that ye sin not. So God is just telling you what is and what constitutes sin. This is a basic law of God which constitutes the right relationship with God and the right relationship with your fellow man. If you don't have the right relationship with God, there's no sense of going any further. You're not going to have a right relationship with your fellow man. That is why when the young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? Jesus, first of all, tried to draw his attention to something. He said, why did you call me good? There's only one good, that's God. What was Jesus saying to him? He was saying one of two things. He was saying to this young man, hey, I'm no good. Or he was saying to this young man, I am God. And he's trying to point out to the young man that he recognized in Jesus something that was truth. Why did you call me good? You see, think about this now, young man. You've discovered a truth. When you came to me, you called me good. Why did you do that? Because you see, you've recognized a truth. I am God. Why did you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. That gives you a hint why you call me good. We, we, we misinterpret that. We think, think Jesus is saying to the young man, why did you call me good? I'm no good. 
There's only one good, that's God. No, that's not at all what he is saying. Why did you call me good? I'll give you a hint. <laughs> There's only one good, that's God. That's why you called me good, because I'm God. What must I do to have age-abiding life? Keep the commandments. Which ones, Lord? And what did the Lord give to him? He gave to him the first table of the law, your relationship with God. Why? Because if you don't get past this, there's no sense going to the second table. If you don't pass the first four, there's no sense going on to the second six. If you don't have a right relationship with God, you're not going to have a right relationship with your fellow man. So Jesus reiterates the first four. Lord, I've kept all these from my youth up. What do I lack yet? Oh, let's come back and take a look at that. What is the first law? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. You say you've kept them all. All right. Go out and sell everything that you have and take the money and give to the poor and come and follow me. You'll have great treasures in heaven. What was Jesus doing? He was pointing out the folly of what the man had said. The first law, thou shalt have no other gods before me, was a law that he was breaking because he had his possessions as a god in his life. They were his God, and they were before. They were there in the presence of his worship of God. Lord, I've kept this law from my youth up. What do I lack yet? Oh, wait a minute. You haven't kept it from your youth up. You only say you have, but in reality, you have a God in your life that is possessing you, and it is even stronger and has a greater hold than I have upon you. Your desire for it is greater than your desire for me. Be careful what you say to Jesus. He's liable to put you on an examination. So much of what we say is flimping off of the top of our heads when we come to worship God. Oh, God, everything I have is yours. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, if you'll just sell this and this and, you know, oh, no, Lord, I really didn't mean that. You know, that's just a figure of speech. Words empty words. We're so guilty of offering to the Lord the empty words of our mouth. Rend your hearts, not your garments, unto God. So God has laid out what sin is. He's said, this is the mark. And so I've given you the law that you might know what sin is, that you will sin not. The people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon burnt offerings. Hey, Notice, the Lord is not even wanting them to build ornate altars. And if you have a, make an altar of earth to make your sacrifice, just pile up dirt for your altar. And if you use stone, don't bring a chisel on it. Because if you put a chisel on it, you're going to defile it. God doesn't want anything to distract from him. Not even a glorious, fancy altar. He doesn't want man glorying in the works of his own hands. God, help us. 
in the church today. You go into so many churches where you've got the fancy work of man's hands, the ornate altars, the ornate buildings and all, and God cannot be pleased with them. God said, hey, be simple. Build an altar out of earth. That's good enough. And if you make it out of stones, then don't carve on the stones. Don't chisel on them. If you put a chisel on it, you're going to defile it. Leave it natural. The naturalness whereby man's work of his hands is not glorified. When we come to worship God, only God is glorified. We don't glorify the works of man's hands. We don't say, oh my, this lovely sanctuary built by the hands of men. This glorious golden altar built by the hands of men. So many places where you go to worship God, your attention is so drawn to the architecture or to the ornateness or to the lavishness of it and to the works of man's hands that you fail to see God. You're lost in the works of man's hands. God was forbidding that. He said, hey, when you make an altar, make it out of earth. He doesn't want man to glory in his presence, the work of his hands or anything else. God wants the glory when we come to worship him. He wants all the glory. God, help that man who seeks to bring glory and attention to himself while doing the service of God. The altar of earth thou shalt make unto me and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, thy oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if you will make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if you lift up your tool on it, you have polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by the steps to my altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. In other words, don't go up steps and high where people can look up and see your bare legs or something. God just doesn't want attention drawn to anything but him when we are worshiping God. He wants your heart and your mind to be centered upon him, not to be distracted. That is why we seek to keep distractions here to a minimum. We don't want anything that draws attention to man. We want our attention be, to be drawn to the Word of God and to God Himself when we gather together to worship Him. For God forbid that any flesh should glory in His sight. In dealing with our Maranatha musicians, one of the most difficult things we have is that of keeping them from these little antics that draw attention to themselves. Even a special movement as you're playing the bass, you know. <laughs> it draws attention to you and takes the attention of the people off of what you're saying, what you're singing. Oh man, look at him, you know. Really swings, you know. Really grooving, isn't he, you know. And, and, and that subtle little 
way that we have of drawing attention to ourselves. But the minute I draw attention to me, then the person's attention is taken off of God, and I am robbing God of that which is His. And God will hold me accountable for it. And thus serving the Lord is always a very fine balance because I must do it in such a way that if possible, I be hid and Christ be seen. And if that comes to pass, then my service for God is accepted and it is blessed and it is successful. But if we're drawing attention to other things, then the people are going out wrong of the full blessing of God. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Exodus on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Exodus 20 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for thy word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And Lord, we thank you for your law, the standards that you have given to us. And Lord, we delight after thy law, We consent to thy law. We desire to fulfill thy law. Give us the power, Lord, to be what you want us to be and to do what we ought to do as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. That is why the Word of God tells us without faith, It's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. 
It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.